Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture, medicine, and conservation. Emphasis on biotechnology and the new innovations that can help people and the planet. My name is Kevin Polka. I'm a professor, podcast host, keynote speaker, and I wanted to emphasize the idea of conservation. Can biotechnology make a difference in our ecology? And this case, yes, it can. And today's a really good topic, one that most of you may be familiar with. And I'm speaking with Eric Carlson. Eric is a graduate student. He's in his PhD track at the, in the Department of Environmental Biology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. I'm glad you're able to join me. Now, you just published a paper in uh, Molecular Plant, which is a really good journal. Yes, mo- uh, Molecular Plant Pathology. Oh, molecular plant pathology. Okay, that, that's a good one too. And, and this is a, um, a, a, about your recent work. Is this just the major project in your graduate studies or is it just part of it? Yeah, it is the major project that uh, I worked on through my master's program. And uh, it's, it actually was going on for a bit before then. Uh, when you're working with trees, everything takes a really long time. So <laughs> I, I kind of picked up the project from uh, a couple of other researchers who have been working on it for a couple of years before I came to the lab and I kind of uh, took it over the finish line. Okay. Well, we'll get back to your specific project towards the end of the podcast today. The major thrust of the story is one we've been talking about before. And this is the story of the transgenic chestnut that, that creates oxalate oxidase. And we talked about this way back, maybe in episode eight or 10. Now we're on 320 something. Way back in episode 10 with Dr. Bill Powell. And then we've had a couple updates over the years. And the reason I love this project is because this is one that makes a few heads explode. There are people who are ardently against the idea of genetic engineering, especially in forests and trees. Yet this is a case where we may be able to repopulate and return Appalachia to what it was in terms of its forest composition. So this is a really interesting project. And I, and I want to start today, instead of just by talking and asking you questions, I want to start with a quiz for the audience because they kind of know this project already. So um, are you ready to give the answers, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here we go. Um, the disease of chestnut blight came to North America and it was discovered, A, on a tree in the Bronx Zoo in 1905, uh, came from trees in Asia, a B on the trees around a popular winery where the disease came in on French wine casks, or C uh, on trees near Savannah, Georgia in 1896, at the time a popular seaport where it was suspected to have arrived on wooden pallets originating in Senegal. So what's the answer on that one? So that would be A. Uh, the blight was originally discovered uh, in the Bronx, 1904, by Merkel. 
and uh, it's kind of a, a familiar story where the fungus was initially discovered after it caused infection in susceptible species. And uh, they originally found out in the Bronx, and then they quickly found it throughout the range after that. Yeah, very cool. And, and, and this is, uh, it, it, it was thought to have come in on trees that were imported maybe from Japan or from somewhere in China that were thought to maybe be better for the lumber industry or what was the whole story there? Yeah, so if you're familiar with uh, the different species of chestnuts, American chestnuts are actually very small when you compare them to like European chestnuts or uh, Asian chestnuts. And uh, so around in the 1870s, they started importing Japanese chestnut uh, to get bigger nuts for the orchard industry. All right. And so that, that's the first question. So here's the second question. And audience, lock in your questions. Well, lock in your answers. Here we go. The reason the transgenic approach might be preferable to breeding is, A, chestnut trees are all clones like bananas, so couldn't really do much there. B, chestnut trees have a long cycle from seed to flower, so each generation takes a long time and breeding is exceedingly slow. Or C, it is extremely hard to cross chestnuts because pollen viability and receptiveness of the stigma are differentially controlled to discourage cross-pollination. So uh, audience, uh, you scream your answer as loud as you can. <laughs> Wherever you are right now, just, um, uh, what do you think, Eric? What's the answer? So I think you're looking for B here, that it uh, takes a very long time for breeding, although I would add several things to that. Uh, for okay. example, the, the resistance in Asian chestnuts that's being used for breeding is a quantitative resistance, uh, which is controlled by at least nine separate loci, and they don't segregate together. And uh, it's uh, very difficult to capture all your genetic loci in, in a breeding program when you have that many different genes involved see i didn't know that i thought it was a i thought i thought it was is it mostly dominated by a couple of those genes or is it how, like what the best gene how much percent does it lend to the resistance yeah that's a great question i don't think we know for sure it's going to it, it takes what we, what we do know is that it takes all of them working together to work because at suny we've actually inserted some of those putative resistance genes from Chinese chestnut into American chestnut, and none of them confer full resistance to blight. Okay. And what's the breeding time, like cycle from seed to flower? Normally, it takes about three to five years for male flowering in the field, and then uh, upwards of seven or eight for nuts. And this is for American chestnut. Okay. Uh, we've developed a technique to speed breed these trees now where we're able to get a nut into a highlight growth chamber and produce pollen in the first year. Wow. You see, that's pretty cool. I would have never guessed that. I thought that, uh, and I know people who are working on the traditional breeding of the um, American chestnut, actually a former student of University of Florida here, um, which this podcast has no affiliation with the university. Anyway. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Jared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Definitely. All right. Um, let's see. So he was in my class. He got an A, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I would no, expect was, nothing less. Yeah, he was a brilliant guy. Really great student. Okay. Um, uh, the impact of chestnut blight, third question, is A, the American chestnut 
was important to the lumber industry, which lost tens of millions of dollars in a few short years. Uh, B, squirrel populations crashed along with uh, effects on deer, bobcats, coopers, hawks, and other forest animals. Or C, within a decade or so, 25% of trees in Appalachia were affected and most of them lost. Or D, all of the above. Audience, lock in your answers. Eric, what do you got? Yeah, so I think you're looking for all of the above there. It, it had quite a range of, of effects when American chestnut was lost, and uh, that led to the loss of lots of animals and many other things. Uh, and where you said uh, 25% of the trees of Appalachia, we're starting to realize that it actually was pretty heterogeneous as far as the density of, of American chestnut. So it might not have been 25% uh, of the trees were American chestnut throughout the entire range, but there were definitely places where that percent was higher than others. Yeah, it was, a, well, it was a dominant tree species throughout Appalachia. And I, and I think that would be fair to say. I would have to agree with you. Yeah. So when this went away, we could think of all kinds of ecological impacts that would have happened because of this change in an important tree that was actually dropping, you know, dropping chestnuts. And this was food source for probably hundreds of different creatures and including probably people. So this is a, this was a major hit. And so the idea of bringing it back seems like a pretty good one to me. And I, and so I, so I love this project. How specifically does the pathogen kill the tree? So the blight fungus enters through wounds on the, the stem. Uh, and once it gets in there and invades wound tissue, it begins secreting oxalic acid, which has a, a range of effects on the, on the cells there, but primarily it kills the cells. And then the mycelia expand from that initial infection site and they will girdle the stem of the tree. And depending on where that canker is, it'll kill either the top of a branch or if it's at the base of the tree, it could kill the entire tree. Yeah, and, and, and give it kidney stones too, right? <laughs> yeah, lots of calcium oxalate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, but there are, there are traditional breeding efforts that are going on, right? So there are efforts to try to introgress those genes from the Chinese species or from the Asian species into the American chestnut and where are those efforts about now? Yeah. So there's been a few different efforts to breed Asian resistance into uh, American trees. Probably the, the biggest program most well-known is the American chestnut foundations backcross breeding program. And when that was initiated in the 1980s, it was believed that resistance was controlled by one to three genes and uh, so they, they set for uh, a program where they were going to breed American chestnut with Chinese chestnut and then do sequential back crossing into American chestnut. So they were trying to capture the resistance from the Asian trees into an American growth form. And then they were going to, after three generations of back crossing, then they began intercrossing three times. So then you end up with a B3, F3. And uh, in theory, this tree should be resistant and uh, look very American. But as the decades wore on and we had new technologies like genomics uh, come about, we've learned that the resistance loci are, are at least nine. That's work that Jared did. 
And so they're working on kind of rejiggering that program and trying to, to approach it in perhaps a little bit of a different way so that they can capture that resistance uh, outside of that B3F3 framework. Yeah, and I think um, the, we did cover this on the, on the podcast. I believe it's episode maybe 102 or 104 um, with Jared Westbrook. We actually talked about the current efforts in breeding uh, of American chestnuts. So if you're interested in that stuff, you can go back. It's actually 102, episode 102, long time ago. Um, so going forward, let's go talk about the transgenic approach again. The transgenic approach was the addition of the gene oxalate oxidase. So this is a, a gene, an enzyme that would actually break down the oxalate that was produced by the fungus that causes the cell death. So that's the mechanism. But why is it important that you have this enzyme that affects the product of the fungus and not the fungus itself? Yeah, that's an important part of our strategy where the, the oxogene isn't directly killing the fungus. So it's removing the main virulence factor of the fungus, which is that oxalate, without actually killing the, the fungus. And what that does is it reduces the selection pressure for the fungus to overcome that resistance. So on trees like Asian chestnuts or oaks, the, the fungus basically lives as a saprophyte. It doesn't kill the tree. It'll colonize the tree and then wait for it to die. We're trying to uh, we're trying to push the fungus back into that type of lifestyle. So it's no longer killing the trees and just living with the trees. Yeah. So you're not affecting in essence, the microbiome, you know, if you will, of the tree that that's still intact. You're not removing this fungus from the population. You're not selecting against it so that it eventually overcomes your resistance, which probably would do in a few years. If, 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 you know, fungus versus tree in terms of its time of regeneration is pretty, uh, pretty different. So this is a really good mechanism. And is the idea that you would plant a few trees out in the forest and that they would produce pollen and then they would cross with what might be left of traditional chestnuts? Because American chestnuts are still there. It's just they only grow to a certain point and then kind of get knocked back. So is, is this something where you would be crossing against American chestnut to try to bring in this dominant resistance and then ultimately getting both biodiversity and resistance? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. We're trying to breed with as many of the surviving American chestnuts out there so we can incorporate their genetic diversity uh, into the breeding program. And we do that with uh, pollen. So we're doing outcrosses with the pollen from our trees. And that way we're capturing the cytoplasmic genetic diversity from the mother trees. So the chloroplast genome and the mitochondrial genome, that's all stuff that we want to get incorporated into the future light tolerant populations versus just producing lots and lots of, you know, clones or something like that with that lack genetic diversity, which will not be able to adapt to a changing environment. Which is important for trees right now as temperatures go up. And also the different trees across Appalachia are probably subject to 
a huge number of different environments, right? In terms of cold tolerance and all that stuff. Yeah, there's definitely a wide range uh, from Appalachia going all the way south into Georgia. And you compare those trees to the ones up in Maine, they're quite a bit different genetically. So there's all kinds of local adaptation involved in the different populations of the trees throughout the range. Well, this is really a cool topic. Um, we're speaking today with Eric Carlson. Eric is a PhD student at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York, and uh, in working with Bill Powell and their laboratory and their team in the generation of new tools to expand the utility of the transgenic American chestnut. So uh, this is the Talking About Tech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we receive a lot of correspondence asking, what can I do to spread the science of the podcast? Well, listener, the answer is easy. Simply share it through your social media networks. Go back and find an episode you love. Share it with someone you might not. 2021 brought some amazing stories told by exceptional scientists like episode 316. It was an interview with the effervescent Dr. Beth Shapiro, highlighted her book, Life As We Made It. We discussed topics in ancient DNA with compelling stories of animal and plant domestication. Episode 314 was an interview with Dr. Pilar Margulis, a genetic counselor who discussed the exciting changes that the genomics era has brought to genetic counseling. Episode 312 was an interview with two Chilean scientists that remind us that modern birds are really just dangerous dinosaurs. Episode 296 was the most downloaded of the year, Dr. Joanna Sodler. She described how microbes have been reprogrammed to turn plastic waste into tasty vanilla flavoring, an amazing feat of synthetic biology. Episode 291 was one of my personal favorites, Dr. Sonia Cruz. She introduced us to the concept of kleptoplasty. It's where a sea slug steals the photosynthetic machinery from algae and uses it to power its own metabolism. Episode 278 discussed innovations in gene editing that may provide therapeutic effects to recover from radiation poisoning. Episode 276 was with the brilliant Dr. Stephen Mayfield, who uses synthetic biology in algae to create new products from plastics to fuels. And of course, episode 323, we talked about Cindy Graham's battle with an aggressive brain cancer and interviewed physicians and her husband. The physicians studied her brain after she left it to science in hopes that her kind donation will stimulate others to do the same. It was an amazing episode with guidelines on how to support research, educational funds, that had been established in her name. 2021 was 52 amazing episodes, driven by outstanding guests and their compelling scientific stories. 
2022 appears to be just as exciting as the Talking Biotech podcast moves into its eighth year and turns the corner towards two million downloads. Take the time to revisit previous content. Share it through your social media networks. It's a wonderful archive that will mark the launch of a new era of innovation that serves people and the planet. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Eric Carlson, and he's a PhD student in the laboratory of Bill Powell up in uh, at SUNY, up in Syracuse. And we're talking about the American chestnut, the one that was made to be transgenic, which carries a gene for oxalate oxidase, which defeats the product of a fungus that invades it. The idea is to be able to end chestnut blight and maybe ultimately to restore the forests of Appalachia. So it's a really cool um, uh, application in the area of conservation. And I guess that's really the big question. You know, I've been watching this project for a long time. And where is it now with respect to trees being actually placed in the ground? So we are uh, we're moving ahead real quickly with that in the last couple of years. So last year, we, we, what we do is we produce pollen inside growth chambers uh, at our college. And then we take that pollen out to designated field plots that have wild type American mother trees. And we cross with those and 50, about 50% of those offspring from those crosses will be transgenic. And last year we had around 2000 nuts produced from that program. And uh, we've gotten a lot better. And this year we had over 5,000. So we're continuously improving our ability to produce new crosses and pollen as well. And we are quickly filling up all of our plots with these trees that we've been producing. A lot of them are going into holding plots so that when if and when they are available to be released, we'll be able to dig those up and send them out to people. And uh, yeah, we're just continuing to cross with more and more diverse mother trees. That's really cool. I mean, now, so the real goal here though, is to, this isn't just an exercise to say, hey, look, maybe we can do this. It is to really return and restore forest ecology. Yeah, absolutely. We're, this is, a truly applied form of biotechnology. It's not one of those studies where you create a transgenic plant and write the paper and autoclave all your lines when you're done with it. We're, we're taking these out and we're planting them in the field and we're, we're testing them, long-term testing them, and we're outcrossing them as quickly as we can so that we can begin this, this century-long project of replacing these trees in the forest. It's going to take a very long time to replace 4 billion trees, which is what they estimate was lost <laughs> with the blight. And that's not something that you're going to be able to do in, you know, a year, or a few years. It's, it's going to take lots and lots of, of groundwork to, to get ready to do that kind of large scale distribution. Yeah. Well, you just got 5,000. <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> it is a good you're, start. With trees going in the ground, it's really different from something that's being deregulated as a food item, even though chestnuts could be food. 
Um, how is the regulatory climate treating you or what, what has to happen in a regulatory environment in order to be able to release these trees? Yeah, it, it's an interesting situation because no one has really done this type of uh, genetically engineered organism for deregulation. So we're, we have to go through the three regulatory agencies, uh, the EPA, USDA, and FDA. And we have compiled these large petitions that contain lots of studies, lots of uh, field safety studies looking at things like pollinator uh, uh, consumption of oxo pollen, wood tadpoles eating our transgenic chestnut leaves, things of that nature that you want to assess before you do large scale releases. And we've compiled these large petitions and they are now all submitted to the three agencies. And that, that took quite a bit of work. We've got a grad student. Well, actually he just graduated a couple of days ago in our lab named Andy Newhouse and his PhD largely focused on the, the issues of deregulating a transgenic tree. And so there, there's all kinds of funny things that go on with that. For example, uh, with the USDA, who regulate our field plots, we need to take lots of precautions to prevent the release of any transgenic material into the environment. And uh, so when we pollinate our trees, we need to actually double bag them. We need to do a pollen bag to prevent uh, the pollen from getting out. And then we have also have to do a metal cage bag over those ones <laughs> to prevent squirrels from going and stealing the nuts and planting them around the neighborhood. So it, it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, paradigm that we are addressing with these trees. And, and hopefully we are setting a framework for future trees to, that will go through the same process. There's some pushback, though, that happens in genetically engineered trees. I mean, there are groups that are sworn to stop genetically engineered trees, focusing on things like the high yield eucalyptus and other things like that. But have they pushed back against the American chestnut? Yeah, so there's a couple of groups that are specifically anti genetically engineered trees. And one of them, it's right in their name Stop GE Trees. And uh, other than them, you know, it's surprisingly few people against us. And uh, as for an example of that, uh, the Sierra Club actually published a paper somewhat recently, uh, and they support our project when they have historically been pretty anti-GMO or whatever you want to call it. But there, there are a small group of dedicated activists that don't want to, to see us succeed with our project. Yeah, but I think this is the point is that you start to see these groups losing credibility when they stand in the way of good ideas. And this is such an innocuous application that all you're doing is defeating the chemical in the fungus that kills the tree, and you're trying to restore to what it was. And so that's why I think that, you know, Sierra Club, you kind of have to go along with it. You don't want to be, you know, Greenpeace standing in the way of golden rice for 30 years to the point where now people don't want to donate because they look at you funny or, or this morning on Twitter, friends of the earth saying, you know, stop the uh, genetic engineering mosquitoes, you know, that are being designed to limit things like Zika and malaria. 
you know, and they're standing in the way of this. So I, I think it's really cool. But you guys haven't had any problems with people going out and trying to dig up plots or chainsaw down trees, things like that. No, luckily that has not happened. And uh, we haven't really had any real threats of that happening, which is great. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, back in the early 2000s and stuff, there was very uh, strong feelings about creating genetically engineered trees. And there was even a lab in Washington that was firebombed to, to stop their work on transgenic poplar. And luckily, we haven't seen anything to that kind of uh, extent with our project. Yeah, that's a really good story for people who are interested in that one, which is which is fantastic. I interviewed the scientist on that project. I think that was back in, gosh, I don't remember the episode, now, episode 250. I talked with uh, Toby Bradshaw, was a, was a scientist, and they firebombed the laboratories, which turned out to not actually have any transgenic stuff going on, but actually it destroyed a lot of really rare material in a library, you know, and like some, it was a horrible story, but really worth a listen if you're interested in that topic. Um, what about the scientific community is, you know, there's every time you're trying to do something like this, there are people maybe in, in ecology or people in the scientific community that, you know, say we really got to move with a little more precaution, you know, bioethicists, things like that. How have they been about this whole idea? For the most part, I'd say that they're pretty supportive. You do hear on occasion some arguments against our, our work from that crowd. I think one of the main ones that I've heard is that the, the forest has basically moved on, that the chestnut is gone and oaks and hickories and things of that nature have kind of filled that gap where the chestnut used to be. And, uh, you know, to them, I'd say we've got plenty of other trees that are on their way out, just like the American chestnut is. And are we going to be okay with less and less diversity as these trees go, go to the wayside? Or are we going to do something about it and, and use technology that we know works? Yeah, and I think that's really the point, especially in the time of changing climate. You can read examples all over the place from forests in the Pacific Northwest where the, they can't adapt to the temperature and the changes in flowering fast enough to be able to uh, set seed appropriately or you know, re reset or repatriate the forest with their own uh, genetics because the flowering is all off. Everything's different. Plus, the trees are highly stressed. And uh, Sally Aiken's done some nice work in this area. And I, and I'm just, um, I just love this idea of the American chestnut because it, it makes sense and it really could be a gateway for all these innovations to follow. And really with that in mind, um, you're, you know, we'll go back to your uh, paper in molecular plant pathology. What was the major thrust of that paper and how does that relate to future generations of the transgenic American chestnut? Yeah, so our new paper is about uh, a new transgenic line that we have produced that still uses the same gene, uh, OXO, that we use in our previous trees, but it is controlled by a promoter that only turns the gene on when an infection or wounding event occurs. 
So whereas our, our older trees, uh, Darling 58 is our tree that we're currently working on getting through regulation, that, that oxogene is attached to a constitutive promoter. So it's being expressed at all times uh, in all tissues. And that's good because that gets the oxo to where you need it. And you know it's going to be where it needs to be. But with this uh, newer line, it's, it's a more of a targeted expression to times when it's actually needed. And we think that that might be beneficial from a few different, uh, in, in a few different ways. Like it, it could potentially uh, have metabolic cost savings, not expressing that gene at all times at a high level and just expressing it right where it's needed and when it's needed. So there'll be many years that a tree is planted out in the field where it might not be infected at all. So that gene doesn't need to be turned on. But when the infection occurs, you want it to be able to be turned on and turned on strongly at the point of infection and be able to, to degrade that oxalic acid that the blight's producing. And the trees that show this new promoter, that use this new promoter, how do they respond to the pathogen compared to Darling 58? They, it's very similar results. Uh, so we have only done stem inoculation assays on small plants so far, and the results look pretty consistent with the constitutive promoter lines. And uh, they're, they just got planted in the field this summer. So we will be able to do longer term comparisons after they've been growing out in the field for a couple of years. So how does it feel to be a scientist who's at the beginning of your career? Well, you know, not beginning, beginning, but, you know, in, in the first, you know, brown belt stage of your career where you're now creating a product that you'll get to retire and see how well it worked. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And uh, like I was saying, we just planted them in the field this year. So when we were planning on where to plant them, I was definitely advocating with the field people, we need to give these trees lots of space because in 30 years, you know, these will be the first ones from this line. And that's always an interesting thing when you're talking about trees is you're looking decades down the line with these things. And it'll be real interesting to see where these trees are, uh, you know, a couple decades down the line. And so if people wanted to follow the progress of the project, where would they look online? So we have a Facebook group. It's called the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project. And it's actually a pretty good, pretty big group. We got a few thousand people in there. And uh, we regularly post in there about current efforts that we're working on, uh, updates, all that stuff. And plus there's a whole uh, chestnut community in there that likes to share their pictures and stuff and things that they're doing on their own. So that's fun. And so what's the future for Eric Carlson? What do you want to do after you're done with a PhD? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's also a, a hard question to answer from any <laughs> PhD student. I would really like to keep working with chestnut. Uh, I have a strong connection to this project you know both uh ideological as well as the subject itself is very fascinating with me um so if i could stay in syracuse and keep working on different transgenic trees i, I would like to do that but uh 
you know, you'll, we got to see what the future holds. Maybe I'll be needed somewhere else to work on trees and, you know, who knows? Uh, there's so many different tr threatened tree species and, you know, we'll see what that field looks like after a few more years and after we hopefully get these chestnuts released. Yeah, you know, I, I really should just do an entire month or an entire year on threatened tree species because when you look at chestnut or citrus or um, uh, redbud and the laurels and uh, elm and, you know, there's uh, so many diseases and so many pests and pathogens, a uh, pine. I mean, so many things are there's just, it's, it's amazing that it's happening. And so, you know, your efforts will be appreciated <laughs> but because trees, you know, still important, you know, for so many different reasons. But, uh, you know, good luck in what you do. And thank you for being a guest today on the podcast. It was uh, really nice to have you aboard. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know the drill, write reviews, tell friends, do what you can by word of mouth to spread this podcast. We've actually been doing really well with seeing the ratings go up. And you start thinking you're going to hit a ceiling and then there's 500 new listeners this week. So a lot of people going back and looking at the old episodes and going through the archives to find things that they like or things that support a project they're working on. So I urge you to go back and re-listen to some of those. There's some real gems out there. And what's really cool is you see how far this podcast has become or how far it has come, uh, mostly because we have wonderful, loyal listeners that uh, make it worth doing every week. So thank you so much for your uh, time, your attention, your downloads, uh, your, so your support on Patreon. It's wonderful. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.